Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Laura Jost, Vice President of Content for the American Journal of Managed Care, and today we're bringing you something a little different, a recap of two discussions on non-small cell lung cancer. Dr. Mark Suchinski, Executive Director of the Advent Health Cancer Institute, speaks with Dr. Martin Dietrich, Medical Oncologist of Florida Cancer Specialists and Research Institute, and Dr. Joshua Sabari, Medical Oncologist with NYU Langone Health Perlmutter Cancer Center, and Assistant Professor in the Department of Medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Dr. Sochinski, Dietrich, and Sabari discuss how precision medicine has impacted the treatment landscape in non-small cell lung cancer for patients with driver mutations, current immunotherapies for patients lacking driver mutations, and the potential benefits and limitations of using immunotherapy to address the unmet needs of patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer without driver mutations. So Mark, we have seen uh, such a change in the practice of lung cancer, uh, but uh, the um, population that we see typically with non-small cell lung cancer, the, the median age is about 70 or 71. The majority of patients have a smoking history. Um, and so there are always issues about performance status, comorbidities at the time of diagnosis. And, you know, what are your thoughts around that? What do you see in your practice or these sorts of things? How do you, uh, how, how do they factor into your decision making in these sorts of things? Well, I think that's uh, a really uh, important assessment in the beginning. Uh, both of us practicing in Florida, um, the performance status in a geriatric assessment is uh, a major factor in, in deciding about uh, the different different chemotherapy regimens. We've seen some real-world data um, looking at chemotherapy uh, in combination with immunotherapy. And it really seems to be beneficial in younger patients, younger defined as, as 65 or younger, and really with an increasing detriment as, as we're moving into, into older patients. But age is obviously only one of the factors that we're uh, taking into consideration, biological factors, comorbidities, um, functional performance status. Really, it's a very refined decision. I'm not sure that we have clearly defined cutoffs. Um, what's very clear is that for, for chemotherapy, um, we're seeing uh, a detriment as we're moving into older um, and less performance status heavy patients. For um, immunotherapy, I think it's less of a concern of toxicity, but more of a concern of um, reduced expectations of uh, efficacy as patients have poorer performance status, probably reflecting also a, a lesser um, strength of their immune system to mount anti-tumor responses. So it's a fine uh, a, a tuning between um, the different uh, different opportunities in the non-driver setting uh, to decide about chemotherapy uh, and immunotherapy applications. Uh, the main concern for um, toxicities that we're seeing is obviously in patients with pre-existing autoimmune conditions. Where about 20% of our patients have yeah. some degree of uh, autoimmune uh, uh, preconditions. And it really is a question of uh, risk and benefit in the individual and um, individual setting. Sometimes those may be mild dermatologic conditions that may be manageable while a patient is on immunotherapy, but there are certainly others uh, where the quality of life impairment may be superseding the expected effect of immunotherapy. And I think that's where biomarkers make a big impact. I mean, there's to prognosticate not only uh, on, a, on a gray scale um, how well would I expect tolerance to be, but how well would I expect efficacy to be. So it's a really complicated uh, first visit assessment to really learn about the patient and try to understand and where we fill in the different uh, the treatment options. What we've seen, obviously, is an increasing number 
of approved regimens. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, now we have a, a couple of four drug regimens that mm -hmm. are out there. One of the newer drugs on the uh, scene, if you will, are the uh, anti-CTLA-4 agents that mm -hmm. we, we had. And so when you think about that particular group of drugs, the anti-CTLA-4, what are your concerns about patient selection, toxicity concerns, these sorts of things? Well, um, first is the establishing a need for these drugs. I think there are, there are a certain subgroup of patients, uh, the PDL1 negatives, patients that may have intrinsic um, resistance mutations to immunotherapy responses in a PD1 centric world uh, where this is really um, uh, an, an important factor. Do we expect any additional um, usefulness of these medications as the first step? Um, for me, the, the experience is actually that older patients seem to be tolerating um, these immunotherapies actually quite well. They don't seem to be mounting um, these aggressive um, uh, responses as much um, as you would expect in a 40-year-old melanoma patient. So mm -hmm. I feel like the, uh, the experience overall with CTLA-4s um, has been better. And we certainly have seen uh, lower doses of, uh, of our two approved CTLA-4 agents um, really going into lower doses and less frequent um, mm -hmm. applications than in, in, uh, with the second approved regimen now, also with a limited number of, uh, of, of infusions. So I do think that CTLA-4 has a role um, that is not limited by, uh, by toxicity, but if a patient has already a, um, a, a poor performance status to begin with, um, a potential side effect um, may be the end of their treatment route. On the flip side, um, I always think of these side effects as a necessary evil, and whether it is cellular-based therapies, bispecifics, or even combination immunotherapies that these um, yeah, immune responses that are manifesting, uh, oftentimes timely coinciding as um, autoimmune side effects, really seem to be um, tipping points for immune activation. So I, yeah. I'm conflicted about um, um, looking at them only negative. This is not the typical chemotherapy off-target uh, toxicity, and they are at some point needed. And I think we've seen across multiple studies that um, they are um, occurrence is actually associated with significantly improved outcomes. So yeah. I think it's a direction that we uh, have to per, uh, pursue harder. The past couple of years, we've seen approval of um, immunotherapy in early stage non-small cell, mm -hmm. either as neoadjuvant, perioperative, or adjuvant approaches. Mm -hmm. And let's say a patient gets that exposure. Um, obviously, they are very different in terms of their duration of exposure. Mm -hmm. But at some point down the road, they relapse. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts about that population? I, it's pretty much a data-free zone right mm -hmm. now, uh, but what are your thoughts about that? What, what would you do? Well, I think it really depends on the, on the, on the situation of relapse, the time, the time to relapse. Um, I think there's going to be a, a little bit of a refinement. I, I think you're mentioning the duration of treatment. I think that's one of the, the hottest questions in the, yeah. in, in the early stage setting. I, if I compare the, the now five regimens that um, have been utilized in the pre-operative and perioperative setting. And it really looks like the three cycles of immunotherapy seem to be doing the majority of the work. And um, I find this highly surprising um, how, how well this actually uh, turned out. It's about a 20% improvement in, mm -hmm. in event-free survival. So probably teasing out a very similar population that would be beneficial in the, in, in, in the relapse setting. Um, in the adjuvant, um, I, I want to say in general terms, I think we're going to be moving from adjuvant applications to neoadjuvant applications. I think the, the data is, is much more persuasive there. Um, leaning on some of the other neoadjuvant versus adjuvant trials from melanoma, for example, the, the hazard ratios there were uh, favoring uh, neoadjuvant approaches uh, in the level of 0.5. And I think it's very plausible if a 
tumor microenvironment where T cells and tumor cells interact is present, that immunotherapy in our uh, checkpoint world is, is, is useful. Um, if a patient relapses uh, two months after, after stopping immunotherapy, uh, I'm not sure that I would really feel um, compelled that immunotherapy is going to be using a, um, a, a new um, uh, approach that would lead to a long-term positive outcome. So a very challenging, uh, very, very challenging patient population. Now, if somebody relapses two or three years later, which will be uh, down the line, I think I, think I would reinitiate a, um, an approach that has um, a PD-1 axis in the center yeah, again. Yeah, ho- ho- hopefully we'll have data moving forward. So, Martin, as you well know, we've seen in the past 20 years or so an increasing number. As, as I count them, we have five mutations. We have four fusions, depending on how you count them, that have FDA-approved therapies. <laughs> in stage four, at the time of diagnosis, what's your strategy to make sure that you um, haven't missed the opportunity to give someone a targeted therapy. Yeah, I think this is now extending beyond stage, uh, stage well, yes, four. Yeah, in all I, honesty, yeah, I, yeah. I think one of the one of the reasons why I think this is so important is because many times when we had discussions about reflex panels and uh, um, reflexive testing was, well, is it the right stage? Is it the right histology? I I do think at this point we have. Um, uh, messages that transcend across all stages and histologies of lung cancer. Mm-hmm. So um, with the hospitals that we work at and, and the, the tests we do, we would like to have um, reflex testing. I do think that liquid biopsy um, and none of the prospective data would contradict it, that we really see that we, we detect more mutations, we start patients faster on treatment, and there's really very little downside to a, to a liquid biopsy, not as a either or or one first versus the other, but really thinking about those as, as complementary diagnostic interventions that will help patients um, get to the right treatment quicker and to reduce anxiety, to um, really help um, uh, capturing the, 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 the broad base. And then there are some mutations that are um, uh, immediately actionable, e.g. GFR is, is by far the most important one in the first-line setting. ALK, um, um, but many, many others. I think we're going to see some very nice data for BRAF with encorafenib, benimetinib. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have um, two agents for CMET. So I think this is going to be, uh, going to be more and more important. Um, liquid and tissue in the beginning. I'm surprised the guidelines haven't picked that up and haven't made this a, a, a mandatory step. It's kind of in the, in the fine print, but I think this will adjust here in the next uh, year it's, or two. It's what I do um, in my practice. I think, it's, yeah. I think there's the, the why not of this is very, uh, yeah. very low. The coverage is, is there. We have very lenient, and I'm sure that's your, your experience too, very lenient collaborations with the, the reference labs for liquid biopsy yeah, so that patients absolutely. are not being uh, overburdened by, by, by duplicate testing. And I think it's the understanding that lung cancer, with some very disheartening data from uh, the targeted therapy meeting in Santa Monica, looking at um, uh, how many patients are actually not making it from the radiographic diagnosis of lung cancer to actual treatment, even if they have a targeted therapy. And it was a shocking number, over 50%. Um, so I think liquid biopsy can fill in. And you don't even need a biopsy if you have a radiographic impression of lung cancer, you see an EGFR mutation, what would the biopsy really still change? I've I've had a couple of patients in my practice where I got the liquid biopsy result before I got the tissue result. Uh, The the tissue result of histology, Mm -hmm. um, you know, was uh, it was an EGFR mutation. So it really can't be anything else at that point with the right right radiographic and clinical uh, Mm -hmm. presentation. I, I think it's so important that you know we get the right treatment to the right patient at the mm-hmm. right time. I'm sure you would agree with me that 100%. that's the importance of comprehensive genomic testing at the time because if you match those, I always use the 
Alex trial. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've reached the median survival on the elective arm of that beyond five years. So these may be patients that may live a, a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, we've kind of talked about this, but, but um, what's your, in the non-driver population, mm -hmm. you know, what, what goes through your mind when thinking about best uh, treatment uh, in terms of your approach in, in the non-driver population? Yeah. Uh, in my, uh, again, my assessment is very similar um, uh, to, I would think of it as yours, uh, Biomarkers in, in the in the full width of of understanding, and not only looking at the drivers, but also secondary markers. I think we've learned um, that when we identify the main driver, that there's many other pieces of information that kind of complement that biomarker assessment. I think we've seen um, in the, in the KRAS population that makes up about a quarter of our of our. Uh, lung cancer patients in the first-line setting, um, SDK11 keep one mutations as intrinsic resistance factors. I think um, I think that's a, a still a controversial number, but I think tumor mutational burden has a role. I think that the cutoff probably has to be significantly elevated in, in lung cancer. Certainly, the 10 mutations per megabase that is the current high-low uh, binary call is probably not uh, the, uh, enough, the actual yeah. number. I think yeah. it's probably more closer to 20. Yeah. Um, but that's certainly those are certainly uh, certainly numbers that I that I incorporate, and then also thinking about um, using these as a um, as a strategy for sequencing and looking at what I would use in the first line setting, looking what I would use in the second line setting, and then once I have the um, available therapies that would be theoretically possible, and then match them to the patient in clinic. I think that's the art of medicine to really find um, what's biologically possible and, and plausible um, to a patient um, and kind of a reasonable delivery. Yeah. And I think that makes it more and more challenging. I think it's very easy when you see those molecular reports um, to get confused with everything that is listed and then how to how to bring that to the patient in the most optimal the most optimal sequence. Yeah, I do think that the biggest impact we make is what we do first. And so to, to your point, I think you're making the point that there are lots of things that we have to factor in and make the right decision for the patient. But I always like to uh, play the game that I, I get kind of one shot with this patient and I better take the right shot uh, to, to give the patient the best uh, benefit. Um, you know, I would I would very much agree with it. I think one of the one of the numbers that always surprises me some, the most about clinic, real world, and clinical trials is the number of patients that don't make it to second line. Uh, absolutely, I think the the subjective assessment, how many patients are moving into second line is vastly overestimating yes. uh, what is actually happening. I think the number of about a third of patients falling off between first and second line um, is is staggering, and if that. Uh, third of patients don't move on to second line, finding a, a, a subsequent line therapy that would be able to overcompensate for this tr tremendous amount of, of loss of opportunity, um, I think it's almost impossible. Yeah, no, so I, first I, line yeah, is yeah. where it's at yeah, right. in, in, in terms of combinations. And right. um, I think that's why chemo IO, uh, even though I don't think of them mechanistically as necessarily mutually enhancing, I do think of them as a winning strategy because we're going all in and allowing patients to have um, the best therapies, uh, the best therapies up front. So going uh, and saving um, better therapies for later, I think that's a concept that maybe in, in a transplant setting where the toxicity is yeah. uh, extraordinarily higher, um, maybe a reasonable concept. In lung cancer, yeah. there's no no data. No. We've had this with flora. Yeah. We have this with uh, alkyl inhibitors. Uh, uh, no reason to save your more effective therapy till later. 
So Josh, let's start with how precision medicine has influenced treatment decisions in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. The identification of driver alterations has really revolutionized care of the patient with lung cancer, right? Now we're able to identify mutations that can patients can be matched to targeted therapies where they live longer, have better quality of life. You know, unfortunately, we're not seeing durable cures, right? Uh, we're not seeing long-term, you know, responses in these patients, uh, but critical to identify these alterations up front and match them to the best therapy. You know, we have immunotherapy, we also have targeted therapies approved. Oftentimes, it's important to know what mutation is going to select for what, you know, appropriate therapy in our patient. And I think it's important to note that in many of these subsets, and I always refer to the ALK fusion population, in the ALEX trial where I don't think we've reached the median survival, it'll be measured in years. So matching that patient with that has that uh, fusion with the appropriate targeted therapy can really change the trajectory of the outcome. Yeah, you're right. I think targeted therapy, you know, when you compare it to immunotherapy, sometimes gets a bad rap, right? People say we're not curing with targeted therapy, but you're right. I mean, the ALK space is such an important example of that, or patients who have a ROS1 fusion. You know, patients can be on therapy for five, six, seven years before they even see, yeah. you know, a systemic uh, therapy that is not targeted, so. Yeah, and, and these are patients that, as much as uh, we're in love with immunotherapy, these are patients that really don't get the same degree of benefit that you see in the the non-driver populations. Yeah, definitely. These patients are generally never smokers, more right. commonly lower mutational burden, right. potentially lower neoantigen load. And you're right, you know, when we do subject these patients to immunotherapy, not only do they not respond well, meaning their tumor doesn't shrink, but they may then develop other immune-related adverse events when they do get yeah. their correct therapy. So I couldn't agree more. It's, it's critical in 2023 and beyond to understand what mutation your patient has in front of you and to match them to the best possible therapy. So how, how are you doing that? How are you identifying these mutations in your patients? Well, well, we'll get into this in a little bit here, but you know, I, I think my uh, standard of care, and I say this is, this is if you, in my opinion, if you don't do this, well, I think we have roughly five mutations, depending on how you count them, in four fusions in which the FDA has approved targeted therapies for. So to me, that's the standard of care. Uh, I um, think an NGS-based platform that's both DNA, RNA based to maximize the fusion um, uh, identification. Uh, I also am a firm believer that there's probably not a gold standard of tissue or plasma. I do both in my patients because we know there is tumor heterogeneity, there is variability in shedding of tumor DNA in the blood. So I think they're complementary. And we know we find things in tissue we don't find in blood and vice versa. So my standard is an NGS-based DNA RNA with both tissue and plasma um, uh, components to it that, that maximize uh, identification. One of the important things to think about is, you know, oftentimes we profile our patients, right? A young patient, uh, an Asian woman, for example, and, you know, we have a high pretest probability for a driver alteration in a specific patient given clinical features, you know, never smoking status or being young or female. I think it's important that we move away from that and really broadly profile every single patient yeah. that we see. You know, even with squamous cancers, we identify driver alterations for example, EGFR at a 1% rate. So really over the last few years, I've been trying to avoid my clinical biases. And like you said, obtain broad panel, next generation sequencing, DNA, RNA panel. I use both plasma and tissue on every single patient I see in the clinic. Yeah. And, 
And I, you know, again, getting back to the point where it's so critical to get the right treatment to the right patient at the right time, I always go into this thinking that I might have only one shot on goal. So the thing, we, we know the thing that you do first is most impactful for the patient. So you might as well get, go, you better get it right the first time out of the uh, population. So um, that's, the tar- that's the driver population. Um, and I do think the standard of care is to do that comprehensive testing, make sure you don't have a driver. Most of our patients in the U.S. won't have a driver, and so kind of they kind of default to the other side of the algorithm, if you will, and that's kind of into the assuming they're eligible for immunotherapies, they 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 they're kind of fall into that category. What are your thoughts about those patients, and how do you approach them? Yeah, you know it's interesting when I meet a patient who has newly diagnosed stage four non-small cell lung cancer, and oftentimes don't have all the information back. I, you know. You know, most of the time I'll have the PDL one expression or right. program death lag N1, but I don't have full NGS. So I generally talk to the patient and say, look, this is a systemic problem. We need to use a systemic therapy. And we're going to talk about chemotherapy, immunotherapy, or targeted therapy. And as you said, if the patient is driver mutation negative by an NGS panel, we then remove that targeted therapy as an option for the patient. And what we're thinking about is how do we utilize immunotherapy or do we need to utilize immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy? And lots of prospective data to help guide our decision there. And really, we're looking at PDL1 expression. Again, the program death ligand 1. If it's high, greater than 50%, there's a very high pretest probability that that patient will respond well to immunotherapy and have durable response. So in that scenario, I'm using a PD1 inhibitor, a checkpoint inhibitor alone. But in patients who are PD-1 low or PD-L1 expression low, I'm generally using combinations of chemotherapy and immunotherapy, and there's been an explosion of data and opportunities for our patients in that high-risk population. I I think, you know, despite PD-L1 low, the PD-L1 negatives, those are the patients who really I worry about up front. Yeah, the um, you know in my practice too, I I look for those patients that with that have high PDL one, and again I think it's important to say that PDL one means nothing until you make sure there's no genomic alteration. Hundred percent. Right? And you can't make that mistake. As I said before, the thing we do best for patients is what we do first. So don't uh, kind of uh, uh, react to the PDL one result before you know the genomic results because you can really disadvantage a patient. Yeah, sitting on and your hands, it. sitting on your hands is yeah. hard, right? You yeah. have a young patient, PDL one hundred percent. Yeah. We're all itching to give immunotherapy. But I, I couldn't agree with you more. You need to have full NGS back to right. make the best possible decision for that patient. Is there a subset of patients where you're more apt to use a combination immunotherapy like the nevoipi or dervatremi approach. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think the patients who are PDL1 negative, mm-hmm. and it's important to explain the biology here a little bit. You know, it's the it's the mutations or the co-alterations that are driving down a sort of suppressive immune microenvironment. That's what's leading patients to have a low PDL1, right? So, you know. If, if you identify a patient that's low PDL1 and has, you know, a KRAS, STK, KEEP1 co-alteration, that patient is not going to derive significant benefit from immunotherapy as a single agent. And we now have retrospective data from both the Poseidon trial as well as Checkmate 9LA showing that that subset of patients may actually derive significant benefit from the addition of a CTLA-4 inhibitor. So, you know, that is the specific group that I've started to look at in my practice. And there are now prospective trials that are, you know, in development to study that patient population in more detail. 
One of the one of the things that's been evasive so far, I think, is the mechanisms of resistance, whether they're primary or acquired. Um, uh, in with regard to immunotherapy, what are your thoughts there? You've mentioned some of the markers, STK11, keep one, where, where you know, I don't know that I I might step up my approach as you've mentioned. Um, I wouldn't necessarily uh, deny a patient exposure um, to, to to that, but the level of optimism that you're going to make a big dent in the disease is, is, is somewhat less. Um, what are your thoughts about resistance and, 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 and what should we be thinking about and what might be out there for these patients? Yeah, I think the, the sort of second line driver mutation negative population is one of the recent failures of our time, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we have not really moved the needle. If you look at, you know, what we're, you know, offering patients in the second line, it's docetaxel or docetaxel and ramucirumab. Those are the same therapeutics we were offering our patient 10, 15 years ago, right? Response rates are low, right? Um, 23%, progression-free survival, about 4.5 months. So we need to do more for that patient population. And, and unlike the driver mutation population, where we can easily identify resistance and easily identify new opportunities for targeted therapies, in the immunotherapy-resistant population, right, the mutation-negative population, we've not had much success there. And you know, you've had patients, right, who get two, three cycles of immunotherapy and have progression of disease. Mm-hmm. Are those immune suppress? You know, is that a suppressed immune microenvironment? Is that T cell exhaustion, or is that primary refractory disease? And we actually treat every every single patient the same, unfortunately, at the time of progression. And we know that the biology of immune resistance is quite heterogeneous and quite broad. So Josh, if you're like me, you know, when I, when I um, uh, start my clinic day, I I show up early in my office and I run my patient list and I kind of get all the information I need. And it's really interesting looking at what your clinic list looks like in terms of all the mutations, fusions, uh, PD-L1 status and stuff like this. Um, but, it, you know, and I kind of think, obviously I haven't seen the patient yet, but I kind of think, well, what's my plan going to be if, if this happens or, or, or that, that happens? Um, I don't know if you do the same thing. I but do it the night yeah. before. Yeah, yeah, I, I do it the morning. <laughs> I, I can't remember that long. <laughs> so um, uh, when you look at that list, what is the greatest unmet need you see, like going to clinic, like, okay, I have a plan for this patient, I have a plan for that patient, but I really don't have a, what's the unmet need out there? Yeah, I think the second line driver mutation negative population is the highest unmet need we talked about in in my clinical practice. You know, one of the second, you know, unmet needs is frontline, you know, PD-1 or PD-L1 negative, right, zero. You know, that's the patient population who I worry about up front. You know, it's the driver mutation positive population where, you know, I know what I'm going to do and I know what I'm going to do for the next two or three lines. And then I know what clinical trial I'm going to offer that patient. It's the patient who has, you know, a, a KRAS mutation or a SMARK-A4 alteration, co-alteration or STK keep one that, you know, I really worry about that patient in the frontline setting. You know, how are they going to do even if I offer them, you know, the kitchen sink, right? You know, CTLA-4 inhibitor, PD-1 inhibitor or PD-L1 inhibitor and, you know, chemotherapy, I do worry about that patient population. So I think that's probably one of the higher unmet needs in my clinical practice. But what are you seeing in your practice? Uh, similar, it's, it's all about the resistant yeah. populations, right? What are you going to do 
next. Uh, you know, it's I don't I don't uh, declare victory with docetaxel ranibizumab. We have a very active early phase clinical trial uh, program, so sometimes they fit into that. I can reserve docetaxel standard treatment until the third line or something right. like that. But it it is a challenge. I think it's it's those you know we we've done so much better in the first line setting that patients are living longer, uh, having control of their disease longer. But the question is, what do you do when that runs out? It's, right. it's, it's, um, you brought up the uh, PDL1 negative. What, what's your standard approach in that population in your clinic? Yeah, historically, PDL1 negative patients were getting chemotherapy and immunotherapy. So, you know, if it was an adenocarcinoma patient, carboplatin, pemetrexid, and pembrolizumab. But I've really broadened my horizon a little bit to try to better understand, you know, why is that patient PDL1 negative, right? Or what else is going on? So if the patient is PDL1 negative and has these high risk features, these co-alterations that we yeah. talked about, SDK11 and KEEP1, I am generally adding a CTLA4 inhibitor in, in this population, in this setting. Now, we've also had a platinum shortage of late, right? Yeah. So I'm sure that's affecting you in Florida. It's affecting us here in New York. So we're trying to think about how to sort of navigate that, that setting in our patients. So pretty complex thinking about frontline non-small cell lung cancer in, in 2023. What are you doing in a pdl one negative patient in the frontline as your standard? Not, not too much different than, than what you've uh, mentioned. I do think that um, we are paying attention to the co-mutation stuff and then try, you know, making decisions based on, on, on that. Um, interestingly, uh, we, we haven't felt the platinum uh, shortage in, in Central Florida, at least within our system. We have a huge system. And so um, I'm in clinic with one of our lead pharmacists every week. So I ask her every week, you know, how are we doing on platinum? And she goes, we're doing okay. Uh, we're getting shipments and stuff like this. But we're a very large symptom. If you're more of a mom and pop, you know, five oncologist uh, in a private office, sure. I think you may be having more issues uh, in that particular setting. Yeah. But, um, has it affected you, the, the platinum? It's, it's interesting. You know, we, we still have platinum, but, yeah. you know, there is a, a platinum email that you have to request for permission. Oh, really? Okay. And then it's got to go to somebody else, right? So we're really trying to reserve it for patients who have curative disease. Okay, uh, yeah. So, you know, adjuvant therapy, neoadjuvant therapy has become a huge thing at our, at our practice. So, you know, trying to use it uh, appropriately in patients, you know. I wasn't able to use it in the inpatient setting for a newly diagnosed small cell lung cancer patient, and, and I was sort of shocked. But yeah. if you think about it, right, yeah. if you're trying to utilize the therapy for the right patient populations, yeah. it, it make, makes sense. Yeah. You know, one other thing to mention, you know, we talk a lot about these subsets, SDK11 and KEEP1. These are all from retrospective series, right? right. We really need to build, you know, right. prospective data yeah. uh, in our patients, you know. Yeah. And, and like you said, the driver mutation positive patient, we've sort of, you know, sliced up that pie very closely and we know what therapies to give each patient. But in the driver mutation negative, it's still really the Wild West, even in 2023. So I do think we need more prospective data building upon just pdl one expression, right? Yeah. Because we know a, a significant patient population does not derive benefit from immunotherapy. How do we better you know, meet their needs? That's all we have for today. From all of us at AJMC, thank you for listening to this Managed Care Cast. For more updates in managed care, be sure to visit AJMC.com and sign up for our e-newsletter. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>